0: Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome. Welcome to ED ECMO. This is ED ECMO. All right, ED ECMO. It's Zach Shiner, and it is September 2023. Uh, exciting stuff going on. We've got uh, Reanimate coming up a couple months. It's actually sold out. Actually, I should take that back. There is one nurse spot left. All the physician spots are sold out. We also have our pre-conference, the intensive course that we run for our San Diego physicians that we are uh, have trained so many of them for our new eCPR receiving centers. It started last month. San Diego now has three eCPR receiving centers. And we are getting data that's coming in right now. Patients, actually, they've already been saved. I can't wait to see what this shows. Uh, so we'll have some more updates through the months with this, is for sure. So Reanimate, though. is going to be fantastic. We have an f- uh, unbelievable faculty, as we always do. We've got Jason Bardos, Minneapolis. Amazing rock star. We've got Scott Weingart. We've got Joe Beleza. We've got Chris Ho. We've got John Marinero from the podcast, University of Mexico. Can't wait. He's coming out. Trina augustine from east coast coming out we've got uh, two people from the Alfred. we got uh patty joyce and natalie applebaum they're going to come out and teach uh, with us what the alfred does in australia always love having the alfred folks they are fantastic so all-star crew but i have one left Vadim Gudzenko from UCLA, he's also coming out to teach the course, and today you're going to hear from him. You heard from Nicole last month about what Los Angeles is doing with ECPR receiving centers. Well, Vadim is the the nuts and bolts. Nicole is the organizer. Vadim is the intensivist, the anesthesiologist that takes care of patients in hospital. And so today we're going to focus a little bit more on that. But before we get there, a couple more announcements. We've got uh, Elso coming up just a couple weeks in Seattle. I'll probably see a number of you out there. Dimitri and I are going to give a little talk together. Uh, Prague. I'm going to be out in Prague in October for Jan Belolovec and his whole crew. I hope to see many of the Europeans come to his course and, and, uh, and sign up for that. So it'll be fantastic. And then most recently, we've got in the news pulmonary embolism couple of papers have come out. John and I actually wrote an editorial for Sakariya's paper from this last month of resuscitation. And I'm excited to talk about it. I'm going to get John on the podcast, hopefully in the next couple of months, so we can deep dive into this. But I think we're missing some patients. I think our VF inclusion criteria is keeping us from seeing some of these PE patients that we could save. It also says that maybe we need to be more aggressive with them. We need to do the embolectomy. We need to do the catheter-directed thrombolysis. So exciting times in pulmonary embolism and how we may need to include more patients. All right. With that, let's hear from Vadim.
1: All right. Um... Well, I'm medical director of uh, adult ECMA program at uh, UCLA, Ronald Reagan UCLA Medical Center. I'm an anesthesiologist by training, but most of my time I spent in critical care and uh, dealing with a lot of ECMA MCS patients here in Ronald Reagan. And uh, I've been here for the last 10-plus years, kind of witnessing and helping to shape the ECMA program at
0: UCLA. Oh, that's great. So tell me, how does your process of eCPR for cardiac arrest work at UCLA?
1: Definitely. So in UCLA, you know, it's a big program. We have adult and pediatric and neonatal, and uh, I'm medical director for adult part only. <clears throat> so in adult patients, uh, we Essentially, provide full spectrum of ECMA support for adults, you know, ARDS, cardiogenic shock, ECPR, bridge to transplant, peri procedural support, everything. Uh, in terms of like intra uh, hospital management, uh, all adult ECMA essentially manage in one ICU. And this is cardiac ICU, cardiac surgical ICU traditionally, but now almost, I would say, 30 to 40% of these surgical patients are actually ECMA patients. The way we run it, it's it's kind of run back as a closed system. So we have one ICU team that basically manages all the patients who are on ECMA. We run every day. Team is multidisciplinary, so it's intensivists uh, with nurse practitioners. Uh, we. Work very closely in collaborating because you know ecma is a big team sport. Working with our cardiac surgeons, with cardiologists, with pulmonologists, lung transplant team, heart transplant team, depending on the indication of the patient. Traditionally, ecma program uh, in UCLA, you know, was established years ago, like you know, probably late eighties because it's a very busy heart surgery center. Uh, but most of it was kind of post-cardiotomy situations uh, and kind of more in a transport world, like heart transplant world. And then as everywhere else in early 2000, -2000, mid-2000, ECMA will start growing. And, you know, 2010, 2015, uh, I came here and we realized that, you know, a lot of outcomes can be improved. So we kind of reshaped that. So we created this ECMA team, and it's multidisciplinary, as I mentioned. And essentially, every activation of ECMA is going through ECMA team and ECMA team consists from intensivist uh, cardiac surgeon because 99% of our cannulation done by cardiac surgeons as well as we have pulmonologists or cardiologists depending on the indications and uh, anyone in the hospital if they think about patient who needs ECMO they page us and the pager like virtual pager goes to everyone and we see patient within 10 minutes and it can be not emergent, it can be just, hey, you know, I have this guy who is a little bit unstable at CCU, and we just worry, we're gonna go see the patient. Or it can be cardiac arrest on the floor, we're gonna go see the patient. And uh, we have pretty well established pathway of activation with criteria. And I think criteria is pretty similar to everyone else, that kind of general criteria is. And then we evaluate the patient we decide if patient needs ACMA. And uh, does not have any contraindication, we do activation cannulation right there. Uh, if patient is a good candidate, but might not need it yet, right? Like still medically optimized, not crashing, kind of relatively stable, and we need just to have time for observation, then we just say, you know, we're gonna do ecmo watch. So patient gonna be on the list, so we're gonna be checking on the patient. And sometimes we say, you know what, It's patient a poor candidate. It, unfortunately, outcome is going to be um, unfavorable with or without that. So we say no. In terms of cardiac arrest, I think it's, there are two different flavors, right? In-hospital cardiac arrest and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So in-hospital is really uh, driven the way that I described. Anywhere in the hospital, it can be on the floor, in different ICU, operating room, CAT lab, if they have patient who's crashing or starting CPR, they will just push pound 36 is our activation of code blue in the hospital, call us, and entire team shows up. And again, it's this intensivist, cardiac surgeon, perfusionist with the equipment. They're going to bring ECMA uh, activation kind of tower and circuits. And because cardiac arrest is a very time-dependent process, we bring everything right away. And then we decide, okay, we're going to evaluate the patient quickly. And if not, then we are not. For out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, uh, it's kind of similar. But the process that we have uh, is obviously starting in emergency room. So it's been a kind of growing process. And several things have been changed uh, in the last, I would say, five, seven years. But the way it is right now, when patients have... Cardiac arrest out of hospital, and they are trans- getting transport to UCLA. Right now, we get actually notification be- as they are in the trans- in transfer. In the past, and this was uh, one of the major things we have changed, is kind of educating emergency uh, department staff that we need to know about the patient as early as possible, because you know we all know that really success of ECPR is about timing, timing and coordination of teams. And, you know, seven years ago, eight years ago, we would get calls when patients had been coded for 35 minutes in ED, and before that was another 40 minutes in the field, would show up, and, you know, outcomes were horrible. So now we get notification, I would say, 90% of the time, a patient is still transferred. So we know at least who is the patient, some basic demographics, and uh, we know the timing. So we come downstairs, and all our cannulations for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest we do in emergency room. We have this trauma bay, basically. And our team comes down. And again, it's ECMA team, intensivist, surgeon, uh, NP, perfusionist. And uh, we briefly kind of get information from emergency room staff, get some idea about who is the patient. And then uh, we get ready. And as patient rolls in, uh, we get more information from uh, paramedics. Get like more details about timing, about witness and witness, kind of more uh, demographic and any more details that we can fill in. And then uh, emergency room staff runs all the station. They intubate. They put lines. You know, they do CPR, all of that stuff. And then, uh, and also emergency room attending or senior f- resident usually runs the code. And we just go ahead and we start preparing everything for cannulation, uh, assuming we think there is no major red flags for contraindication. And typically, uh, after cannulation, we kind of stabilize patient, and uh, most of them they go to cath lab, and afterwards they go to uh, cardiac ICU, and we we'll kind of take from there. I know I talk a lot. Probably there is something else you want to clarify, but you know I'm passionate yeah. about
0: the stuff. <laughs> Oh yeah, no, that's awesome, Vadim. So I think I think what the world is trying to figure out right now is how do you organize this? We heard from Nicole on the kind of the bigger structural aspects of how do you organize a city and whatnot. But I want to know from you, how do you organize it within the hospital? Can you take me through from the moment that patient hits the door to the patient to the time that they're on pump? What's going on? What are you doing? How are you working this system? And then what are things that you think that you could do better? Things that you've learned from now having, you know, a couple of years of having eCPR receiving centers?
1: it's no, a great question. And absolutely, I think um, as we're witnessing more trials coming out with conflicting results, you know, Arrest, Prague, Inception, uh, We, I think more and more are realizing it. it's not about ECMA. ECMA is fantastic. We love it. We know it works. There is no doubt about it. It's all about coordinating of care and really selecting patient right and providing this thing in a very time-efficient manner. I think what worked for us and what I think was really important is creating um, streamlined communication lines and standardizing the selection criteria. So that was kind of number one for us. So uh, we created this one-pager that goes to the team and the team is, although not very small, it's actually very consistent. So we have like, you know, 10 ICU attendings that share the same path approach. We have several cardiac surgeons, we have like the same group, it's small group, So the team knowledge and culture is very close and assessment of the patient and decision about initiation or not initiation is done very quickly. Right. So that that part. So we get information, we assess patient really quickly. And because in our experience, we're fortunate enough to have essentially all providers in-house. We have 24-7 in-house, intensivists, with MPs, with perfusionists. The only person who is not physically in-house is a cardiac surgeon, but they're immediately available. So overall response time uh is very fast. So that's you know, the core team that who makes decisions and cannulates is small, well-trained, well-equipped, and have very good uh, both foundational knowledge as well as kind of of like um, institutional knowledge, how to do things, right? Um, In terms of the out-of-hospital cars in and one thing that I think was major change is getting emergency medicine on board, that first of all, convincing them this stuff works, and uh asking them and working with them and educating about early notification. Because that was one of the major pieces. And actually the, the study that we're doing that you know you probably discussed with Nicole really helped because now, you know, we have people in our emergency department being, you know, um cautious about ECMA. Let's say let's let's say cautious and not believing in it. But once you have four major centers, three major centers, four major centers jumping on it, and it's an LA County driven initiative, everyone, okay, we're going to be part of that. Educating them and really establishing direct line of communications that once you suspect the patient that minded ecma. We need to know about this patient in advance. And another thing, you know, people I think worry that oh, if we call a um, patient is poor candidate, they're gonna blame us. And we actually say no, no, no. We want to know about the patient. We would rather come downstairs, see the patient, say, no, and walk away, then later on learn about a good candidate, potential salvageable, but we miss the window of opportunity. And that uh, education and kind of closing the loop with emergency medicine team was really a fundamental change because now, you know, we're standing there ready to go and that's why, you know, the time from arrival to emergency room to cannulation can be under 10 minutes because we're there and decision is made and also the criteria that are used are pretty straightforward. It's not complicated. Yeah, once in a while, we have some maybe questionable candidate and I think in retrospect, we're probably more cautious about putting somebody who's going to be an unfavorable candidate than being more aggressive. But at the same time, I think it's kind of programmatic decision. So those things work. Um, I think what I would, if you ask me, like, what should I change? What would I change or make better? Um, I think the problem with ECPR, even in the busy Center centers, UCLA, it's not a very frequent event, right? We probably do, I would say, under 20 eCPR in emergency department, right, a year. And uh, realistically, probably like teams, in mid-teens. Um, and although for ECMA team, it's pretty routine process, for emergency room stuff, it's not. So what I would really like to do, and this is what we're working on right now, is creating frequent simulations. And it's not about who puts the cannula and how put IVR into bed. It's about multi-disciplinary team coordination. How how the whole dance arrived, and you know, I think I was always impressed by what you do in sharps, like because you run everything in such a small lean team. And we have exactly the opposite. You know, you have probably five people cannulating patient, right? We have like twenty plus because trainees, residents, fellows, and you know, a lot of people. And uh, sometimes I wish we don't have as many resources, so we can streamline the the whole initiation process. We're going to be forced to it. But I think that's one of the things that really helps that everyone needs to know what they're doing. And then all timing and all the process is really streamlined and and optimized.
0: Okay, I wanna get back to the CT surgeon. So you get the cardiac arrest, the CT surgeon is not in the hospital. You call that doctor in, they need to drive in from home. Just, Just tell me how this works.
1: I know, it's it's actually really interesting and always sensitive part of conversation.
0: Um, but in reality, many
1: ECMO centers don't have cannulators in-house, right? And uh, we are fortunate enough because we're a very busy cardiac surgical center. that even if they're not assigned to be in-house, right, they're not like shift who's, you know, they're sitting in, in call room there is so much surgical activity happening 24/7 that there is i would say 99% of the time somebody is in or because we have transplants happening we have uh, you know cardiac surgical emergencies dissections you know some other emergent things happening so we have people in house all the time and yes we have you know our couple surgeons are immediately available and it just works on the flip side you know we have also cardiac surgical fellows who uh Senior one are pretty good at it. In addition, uh, even if we don't have cannulator surgeon in-house, several of our intensivists are, I would say, fairly comfortable helping in starting initiation. So surprisingly, uh, you know, in hundreds of hundreds of ECMAS we've done in the last, I don't know, seven, eight years, Not having cannulator in-house was never an issue. We had other issues, you know, other things. Like we could not find the right cannula or, you know, some other things. But person who can cannulate was actually available most of the time.
0: Okay, got it. So big center, lots of people. Even if they're in the operating room, they'll just get out of scrub, come on down and evaluate the patient. It usually works out, yeah. All right, yeah. So, yeah, and your paper, fantastic paper, Uh, you know you you presented a little bit about this you showed 30 minutes of time to initiation and in our new receiving centers in San Diego we are we're so interested in these data points and the minutiae that you have because we would hope that we can get that less by using emergency physicians the whole goal is to be able to have time to initiation to be minimal so immediately available but less experienced doctors so is that a big deal and so in your facility, I'm, I'm interested. I'm interested to see, you know, what, what are your thoughts? Do you think this is the right way to go now that you've seen how it works? Does calling the physician in make sense when they have way more experience than the rest of us? Or do you think that we should be using the doc that's right there and immediately available? Now, there's no right answer to this. This is controversial. I'm still trying to work it out in my own mind. But I want to know. What do you think?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I think it's a great point. And who, who is canulating is really widely debated around the world. And, you know, there's cultural difference between Europe and the U.S. and Australia and New Zealand. You know, in my mind, uh, I think the canulator should be the person who can do the best and immediately available, right? And I think we're lucky. I think, again, UCLA, we're lucky that... Our surgeons are really good at it, and they're immediately available. I strongly believe you can train with enough experience. Uh, uh, you can train, essentially, any kind of practitioners to put cannulas in the modern uh, era of ultrasound, of easily available and advanced wires and cannulas and dilators. It's not, it should not be a rate really limiting step. It's really about, like, if you get people trained enough to do it, Intensivist can intubate, emergency, uh, the physician can intubate, uh, in, in, not intubate, sorry, uh, can cannulate, cardiologist can cannulate. Uh, can can but it really depends on who you have immediately available. You know, in our study, right now we have four medical centers. So, you know, UCLA, Cirocina, we have surgeons cannulating. LA County and Long Beach, we have cardiologists cannulating. It doesn't matter. I think whoever can get it done faster. But, you know, it's interesting because I think the time is really not about conulation itself, but about getting patients from the doors to initiation of conulation. And uh, uh, we actually look at our own results. And our, I, I can't tell you exactly. Our time is shorter than 30 minutes overall. Okay. Because... Uh, Hope, I hope we're going to publish these results. We'll look at our all out of hospital cardiac arrest, and our total time from arrest to ECMO start was about 62 minutes, including, I think, at least 35 minutes of transport.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's what's so great about these big academic centers is you have all these resources, all these people with experience, all this training, uh, my situation would be the opposite. We're a community hospital. Chance of us having a CT surgeon in the hospital is low. And the chance of them that they would be available and not in the operating room at the time of arrest is even smaller. And so we are trying to we optimize the use of our available human resources. And that's what a lot of other cities are doing as well, trying to figure out how do we optimize what we have. And in that vein, I really would like to ask you because I think that's what people who are listening to this want to know. They're trying to figure out they they like you said they think ECMO works. Data says it works. Now how do we make it in structure it in a way that it will work for us? And so with your experience in Los Angeles, what do you think? How do you what are advice tips that you can give to people out there trying to start up programs right now?
1: Yeah, you know, I think I'm glad you brought this up because it's I think this is unique about this study, that we have, first of all, a major metropolitan area, a huge metropolitan area with ten plus million people, and <clears throat> centers we have are actually quite interesting. We have one, like two academic centers, right? Then we have a big county facility, and then we have another uh, facility that is kind of community prior practice uh, place. So, how you can connect them all? I think intrinsically there is some degree of uh, competition. Uh, especially between like major centers, uh, but not in this particular area. Not in terms of cardiac arrest, out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, because patients are out there. And I think if anyone wants to make it work, it needs to be uh, driven and supported by at the level of county and pre-hospital care. And that's why I think this partnership with uh, LA County, LA the county pre-hospital care team and with nicole boss i mean that was fundamental to make it work it needs to come at the level of pre-hospital care and uh, then because they help all the paramedics all the squads they run all the protocols they run all the dispatch they direct all the patients uh, they know all SRCs and ECMA-capable centers. So that's where all this coming from. Because, you know, right now in our study, the idea was that it's not just we're going to provide ECMA. We're also actually going to potentially offer change of standard dispatch of patients without hospital cardiac arrest. So if patient is in refractory arrest, they will bypass causes SRC and come, come to ECMA-capable centers. And this is huge change. This is huge change. So that's why, like, yeah, I, you know, I'm sitting here in university and, and I want to do a CPR for hospital cardiac arrest, but I cannot do it by myself. In addition, you know, I think as we learn running this study, success of this project, I would say, or this, you know, a process is really in training paramedics because that's a huge undertaking. And, you know, I don't think we in any separate hospitals have even understanding or capacity to train paramedics. It needs to be coordinated with pre-hospital team. So I think one piece of advice, if somebody wants to start something like that, it needs to be in coordination with uh, county or city, pre-hospital care, medical directors, and you need to have a serious buy-in. And I realize right now, probably it's not easy because the data is still not very convincing. But, you know, we're working on it.
0: I mean, what you guys have done in Los Angeles is impressive. I mean, you have a city that has horrible traffic. You've got four, well, I mean, three during your study, now have four, but three different academic centers, all prestigious, all have their own bureaucracy and their own motivations. And you got them to somehow work together. And so with all these kind of like, things kind of hampering you, you had a pretty good outcomes. And you know, you you were able to get a fair number of patients. And even with these prolonged initiation times, you had you had benefit to patients. So impressive. Uh, and this is where you kind of just want to say, ah, if I could just optimize a little bit, if I could just get those times down a little bit. And Nicole mentioned this last month. Like can we just shave off a few minutes of time here and there that that maybe you could get better. And we know this from the Minneapolis data, you know, at that 30 to 40 minute mark, Wow, the outcomes are spectacular. The increase in lives saved is spectacular. At the 60 minutes, you know, it's not bad, but not what we could get in a 30 to 40 minute mark. And so your institution, your program, your county has done amazing things to kind of come together and make this happen. Something that we can look up to down here in San Diego as far as uh, the, the corroboration of different different institutions. But to change topics a little bit, now you're an intensivist, anesthesiologist, critical care doc. Uh, I want to hear about this management of patients upstairs. Can you tell me about how this goes over at UCLA? Uh, oh my God. <laughs> how many hours do I we have?
1: <laughs> um, well, you know, I think we try to be as evidence based approach. And, you know, if you look just for the group of the patients with. Um, out of hospital cardiac arrest, you know, uh, there is some, the, the data is does not exist. What do we do with them? You know, I think overall, what we learn uh, after cardiac arrest, and, you know, most of these people are uh, ACS, acute coronary syndrome, very small proportion we have with massive PE, but most of them people are ACS. Uh, they go to cath lab and, you know, some of them get stent and some of them actually have no culprit lesion to intervene. And then uh, once they come to ICU, there is several very important things we're trying to do. And number one is obviously get neuro exam. So they try to stop all the sedatives and they typically get a very small amount of sedatives and get some neuro exam. And even in the overall good outcomes, most of these people will not have a any neuro exam for the first 24 hours. Um, you know, the question always comes up uh, about hypothermia, right? Do we do therapeutic hypothermia or not? Uh, the data in non ECMA world is not very convincing, as we know. I think ECMA community is still kind of divided should we cool them or not? What we actually learn interesting is that most of these people are actually called by themselves, you don't need to cool them because of exposure prolonged CPR, initiation with ECMO, these people are relatively cold. So we try to maintain some degree of uh, normal you know, We are not cooling them down to 32 or 33 degrees, but we are not warming them up aggressively. And then you know, we, we assess all the organ dysfunction. And another issue that always comes up within the first 24 hours is LV venting. Again, kind of debate about should you vent or not? i think we tend to be more conservative about venting we don't routinely vent every patient let's say if during cath lab they see absolute cardiac standstill and uh, no cardiac function then our interventional cardiologist would actually put impeller right there but this is a very small proportion of patients most of the patient will come up with some degree of function we'll assess with a couple echoes. look at LV size, distension, aortic valve opening, and then decide if we can maintain some degree of pulsatility, we would just observe. If there is absolutely no pulsatility, we'll do more active venting, either with balloon pump or impeller. I know there is some interesting, quite compelling data that venting might help not just survival, but actually long-term cardiac recovery, but also are not cheap. Plus, you know, there is complication with impella, you know, ischemic legs and hemolysis, all of those things. So I think we need to be careful about going routine uh, venting for this patient. The rest of them kind of provide standard ICU care, try to minimize sedation, nutrition. And we are very aggressive in terms of awakening and activation of the patients. So if patients start waking up, we try to wake them up as fast as possible. And, you know, the one who has favorable outcomes, we usually try to extubate them, you know, like 48, 72 hours, get them out of the bed. And, you know, because we have pretty active heart and lung transplant program and to be listed for organ transplantation patient needs to be awake and ambulatory. So for us, it's a fairly routine process. So every time you see this, you know, video like people walking on ECMA, that's what that's what we do. We're very aggressive about that. But it's it's a big team sport. You know, I have I think this is the piece where I should say, you know, all of this thing we discuss, it's not Vadim Kutzanka or one cardiac surgeon. This is like army, army of amazing nurses perfusionists, respiratory therapies, physical therapies. This is just incredible teamwork, and all of the outcomes we have cannot be done by one person. And then, you know, overall uh, with ACS, what we've seen within the first uh, four or five days, and I think this is the experience of most of the centers, the heart will recover, and then we'll be able to win acma and decanulate. And patients that are not recovering, so either they have some pre-existing cardiac condition, or they're just devastating MI. If this is the case and we see that there is no recovery, but the patient has some neurologic recovery, then we call our heart transplant specialist team and say, hey, let's start thinking what what else we can do. Are we going to short-term vet, long-term vet? Are we thinking short-term vet transplant? Or maybe we're thinking just directly going from ECMO to transplant, assuming everything else checks in. Uh, the biggest problem, obviously, is uh, devastating neurologic uh, injury. And oh, I didn't mention that f- usually within the first 24 hours, every patient gets CT scan, head CT had scan. And if they don't wake up within the first 72 hours, we do pretty aggressive neuro-monitoring. And again, we're lucky. We're a big academic center. Our neuro-ICU team, uh, in neuro-intensives are phenomenal. They see all the patients, they do neuromonitoring and uh, kind of help us with prognostication.
0: Ah, Avadim, that is fantastic stuff. Anything else left? Anything else you want to share with us before we take off?
1: Yeah, you know, I think live in a really exciting time when, you know, ECMA is becoming mainstream, right? I think, you know, 10 years ago when I was in training, I I saw ECMA first time during the uh, H1N1 flu, and this was like, wow, what is this thing? And now everyone knows about ECMA. Now, you know, patients' family come to us and say, hey, can we put my dad or somebody on ECMA? like, no, we cannot. (laughs) Uh, But also, I think, uh, you know, this public awareness and this really exciting time coming with responsibility, we need to be careful because it's a very intense resource, expensive resource, but also, you know, one thing we learn, and I think everyone will agree with me, anyone who does ECMA, it's ultimate life support. You know, we've never seen anything like that before. It's really a machine that can provide such incredible life support, but it comes with so much ethical issues that we need to be very careful. And I think we all seen it during COVID is that how we allocate resources, how we deal with these super long runs that no one knows what to do, and how we actually give support to our staff, to our nurses, to physicians, when you deal with this ultimate life saving machine that might go to nowhere so i think we need to be very excited rightfully we need to work very kind of carefully and create more data new evidence you know look at new literature run more randomized studies to really understand who benefit from it who does not what are settings what are key components but also be a little bit humble because uh, this is a really powerful tool in our hands. And starting Ekma program, it's not buying hardware help or any other cool devices. There, you need to really have serious buy-in from institution, from the team, and structure it around people. Because ultimate success is about Ekma team. It's not about the technology itself.
0: Yeah, and I would add the medics to that as well. I mean, they do so much work, all this pre-hospital work and, you know, struggle and trying to extricate these patients. And in your study, you know, a third of the patients went on, and I'm imagining that's probably going to be the same for us in San Diego. Uh, And so two-thirds of the time, they do all this work. They bring them to the hospital and then we pronounce them. And so that can be very frustrating. We have to make sure we we educate them well and thank them well. I'd also lift up the nurses there as well. I mean, when you have a patient that you've been working with for seven days or longer, and then all of a sudden it's all for naught and you're pronounced. And so you have to, yeah, I think we have to really, like you said, just we really have to take care of these people.
1: Yeah, but you know, it's also, I'm glad you mentioned this thing because paramedics are absolutely vital. To get this out-of-hospital cardiac arrest programs going at least in this country but also there is one interesting thing that i think we see across all the studies that are published and including our own experience as you start implementing this super complicated protocols with ecma and lucas and all of this stuff you actually change the outcomes of people who don't get ecma this collateral benefit that we see for the patient just because the system gets kind of like thyroid boost, you know, <laughs> and get a little more efficient, that's actually probably is one of the strengths. You know, this is what, you know, people observe in Prague study, right? That's one of the biggest results. Their control survival was twice as high as they anticipated. And again, I think this is coming because of the paramedic, they had additional training and they, they really like it. You know, I see... Our medics bringing patients to us and they stay in a watch cannulation and they now since we have this uh full-up calls they want to know what happened with these patients. for them it's 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 a commitment so definitely uh, you know it's, it's exciting it's a very exciting time and i really hope we're gonna find this all these little components that contribute to success and make it right not just for one center not for one region but make it more generalizable
0: oh that's awesome Well, Vadim, thank you for coming on the show.
1: Zach, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.